Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Tom Spohr, the director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage, and I want to welcome you to everyone that's attending this event today. I hope you're having an outstanding day. We have a great program in store for you, and we're only going to go for an hour, and so I don't want to take too much away from that at the start. In terms of housekeeping, both of our guests today are going to speak for about eight minutes or so, and then I'll ask them some questions to get this going, and then we're going to turn to you, the audience, and for your questions, which you will submit through the GoToMeeting question box. I encourage you to submit questions throughout the program on the question box on the right side of your screen. When you enter the question, please enter your name and your affiliation if you have one. That'll help us put our answers in the proper context. Uh, this program is being recorded. Uh, it'll be available in perpetuity at heritage.org, and it'll also be emailed to you within 48 hours of the end of the program. Well, as you may know, the Army has embarked on an ambitious program of modernization designed to bring new capabilities, new formations, new doctrine to a force to prepare for great power competition. They stood up Army Futures Command, they established eight cross-functional teams, and they've established six modernization priorities. And surprising to me, they have stuck by those modernization priorities. In the past, the Army has changed modernization priorities fairly quickly. One of those priorities, number three on their list, and one of the cross-functional teams concerns future vertical lift. And to accomplish the goals, the ambitious goals that the Army has set out, they've promised to break the previous industrial age molds and ways of doing business and obtain capabilities more quickly and with greater levels of soldier input. Well, I'm delighted that we have the two key individuals in the Army Aviation and Future Vertical Lift Community with us today to share their perspectives, Brigadier General Wally Rugen and Mr. Patrick Mason. And I'd like to encourage them to turn on their webcams and join me on screen now. Let me uh, introduce them now briefly and then we'll directly roll into their remarks. General Walter Wally Rugen is a career Army aviator. He was born and raised in Onalaska, Wisconsin, and commissioned to the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York, in 1989. Prior to his assignment as the director of the Future Vertical Lift Cross-Functional Team, uh, he served as the 7th Infantry Division Deputy Commanding General for Support at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Washington. General Rugen's previous assignments include Headquarters Department of the Army, Commander, 2nd Combat Aviation Brigade, and Commander, 3rd Battalion, 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Rounding out our panel is Mr. Patrick Mason, the Program Executive Officer for Aviation. A member of the Senior Executive Service, Mr. Mason assumed his current position 
in January 2020 as the PEO Aviation. He's responsible for managing the Army's aviation platforms worldwide. Prior to becoming the PEO, Mr. Mason served as the project manager for technology applications at Army Special Operations Aviation Command. And previous assignments have included Deputy Program Manager, CH-4053 Kilo, Director, Flight Test Directorate, Army Test Center, and Chief Rapid Prototyping and Integration, Army Aviation Applied Technology Directorate. But we are super lucky to have them this morning. Uh, I'm excited about this program. And now at this point, I'd like to invite General Rugen to make some remarks. Thanks, Joe Spore, and, and really thank you to uh, to Heritage for hosting us today. You know, we keep getting better and better at these uh, uh, virtual events, and so it's um, it's exciting to see us all get better at it. I hope uh, today finds you uh, uh, healthy, and thanks for coming out to listen uh, to us talk about Army aviation. And Army aviation has always been an asymmetric advantage for our ground force. Um, it, it has been something since the uh, mid to late 60s, depending on how far you go back, that really brought the ground force a capability that allowed them to fight and win in uh, multiple complex and, um, and contentious uh, battles. I think when uh, we talk about FVL, I've been at this since November of 2017. Uh, obviously, we, we went IOC and FOC in 2018 with the cross-functional team. Uh, but we've been thinking about Army aviation modernization for, for a long, long while. And so uh, we, we are aligned as a team, as we've always been, across the aviation enterprise. And uh, I've been happy to, uh, in some points, lead the charge, but in other points, uh, um, you know, work on a shared vision across the six-pack. Obviously, future vertical lift, uh, probably no surprise to everyone here. We have four lines of effort and four tenants. Of the four lines of effort, uh, future attack reconnaissance aircraft, future unmanned aircraft systems, future long-range assault aircraft, and modular open system architecture. Those uh, four lines of effort have not changed, and we continue to fight and drive on that line with the uh, requirements development uh, and capability development. The four tenants, uh, I think everyone has heard me talk uh, through this in the past, but we remain laser-focused on the tenants of uh, leap ahead reach, so speed, range, endurance at range, that these uh, compound uh, aircraft and new technologies give us. Uh, we obviously, with the NDS, want to be lethal, so we're, we're working very hard to generate the standoff and overmatch we need in the future battlefields that we anticipate, um, and, and we're, we're driving on that as well. Survivability and affordability, Obviously, we gain an inherent uh, amount of survivability with the standoff we're generating from our lethality, uh, but we're also working uh, in a classified realm um, on our survivability um, tasks and gaps, and again, pleased with that effort. On affordability, that's where we've been in the news a lot lately. Uh, we're very much generating a cost-conscious culture within uh, Army aviation uh, writ large. We want to understand. Uh, where technology will be deflationary and allow us to uh, capture those deflationary aspects of technology and build them into our uh, systems and make them affordable. I will say that uh, we're on contract across all four lines of effort and uh, all four tenants. Uh, we have requirements documents that are signed across all four 
of our lines of effort and across all four of our tenants. And I'll review those very quickly and then I'll get off the stage and ready for your uh, comments. But obviously on, on future attack reconnaissance aircraft, we're in our final design and, and uh, readiness review, driving towards that in November, December of this year. And, uh, and really uh, more importantly, in our experimentation in Western test ranges, using uh, FAR surrogates uh, and uh, UAS surrogates to generate that ecosystem for our penetration phase of MDO, and uh, that is going to good effect. On UAS, uh, obviously we're in the news on future tactical UAS, very proud of the team that has put that together. Uh, we have three brigades that have uh, a tactical UAS that is quieter than the shadow, uh, not tied to a runway, and can um, you know, be transported organically via uh, CH-47. Um, we're getting great uh, data collection from uh, the first two brigades already. First of uh, the first uh, ABCT out of uh, Fort Riley and 2101 out of uh, the 101st. Obviously, we'll uh, follow up with the 1-2 uh, Striker Brigade out of JBLM, 3-1 ABCT at Fort Bliss, and 3rd of the 82nd out at uh, Fort Bragg. Uh, but air-launched effects is also in that future UAS. Out at Yuma, we had four air-launched effects flying simultaneously. These are our small drones that we're launching from our Black Hawk helicopters uh, currently, but that Black Hawk is a surrogate for FARA. Um, those air-launched effects uh, bring uh, a tech maturation of a mesh network forward, um, and we really want to get out to the core fire support coordination line. If you're familiar with how deep that is, uh, so very deep with these uh, these small drones. Um, we're also doing a number of electronic warfare, electronic protect and electronic attack tasks with these uh, air launched effects. Um, and obviously, you know, RISTA and ISR tasks. So reconnaissance, surveillance and target acquisition to find, fix and finish, you know, what's hunting us, our pacing threat, and then also those high payoff threats. Um, future long range assault, uh, Again, going very, very well. We have a requirements document that's been AROC. Uh, I'm gonna let uh, Mr. Mason you know, discuss that in depth. Uh, and lastly, modular open system architecture. I think, again, across the aviation enterprise, we've aligned on a vision. Uh, it wasn't easy work, uh, but amongst our S&T uh, experts, the uh, requirements folks, both out of the CFT and out of Fort Rucker and the PEO, we're seeing more and more alignment on what we want out of modular open system architecture. Um, again, the requirement document was just signed by General Murray uh, this past month, and we're really interested in the uh, modular or the uh, mission system architecture demo coming out of S&T, which will be uh, complete this December. So a lot happening still in FVL. I think I've taken too much time with that. I'll hand it off to uh, Pat Mason, my wingman. General Rugen, thank you so much. That was wonderful and uh, giving us a lot to think about. I would remind our listeners, the folks participating, you're free to submit questions on the question tab on the right side of your screen. Uh, without further ado, I'll turn this over to Mr. Pat Mason, the PEO Aviation. So thank you. Well, good, good morning. Good morning, General Spore, and, and thanks for this opportunity and thanks to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this and all of you for joining us. And certainly great to be here with uh, General Rugen, uh, the director of the CFT, as we work hand in hand to achieve those aggressive modernization goals, aggressive yet achievable modernization goals uh, that the Army has set forth and specifically for the, 
for future vertical lift ecosystem. You know, before I get into some of the programmatic details and talk about each one of these efforts that General Rugen has already addressed, I really just wanted to reflect back on the last two years. General Rugen mentioned uh, 2018 and IOC for AFC. And certainly two years ago, General Spore wrote a piece for Heritage where he talked about um, the stand-up of AFC and what AFC needed to do. Uh, and in that article, he specifically addressed the need for better integration and execution of requirements and acquisition processes. And uh, there's, a, there's a part in there that I, I really enjoyed where he talked about needing to understand cost associated with requirements and how program managers are measured within the acquisition process and how that ties to outcomes. And it really comes down to the, the three elements that we've always talked about, which is requirements, funding, and acquisition processes. And so the question that I get a lot is, how is it going now that it's two years, AFC is IFC, and what is the relationship and how do you work together? Uh, and I, I will tell you that it's been a tremendous relationship and a tremendous relationship with General Rugen as we've leveraged the strengths and attributes of both AFC and ASALT as we work together in a synergistic and aligned manner to drive towards superior outcomes for the Army and to deliver the modernization that is needed to execute multi-domain operations and large-scale combat operations. Um, but let me give you a couple of tangible examples of how that has played out in those three domains. And the first one is requirements. So General Rugen talked about FLORA and he talked about a draft set of requirements. And it is a draft set of requirements. And so for the future long-range assault aircraft, under the current effort that we have going on, which is the competitive demonstration and risk reduction, We've taken that draft specification, broke it down, that draft requirement, broke it down into a large specification, and then we've given it out to the industry members that are on the CDRR. And we've given it out for them to do a design optimization of that with trades analysis or trade space that they provide back to us in tiered priorities. Affordability is number one, tiered performance attributes is number two, and schedule is number three. And so when you look at that, it's really flipping the defense procurement paradigm where we would write a requirement, we would flow it out to industry, and then we may get some red lines, but we would expect industry to do that without a clear understanding of affordability goals, performance metrics, and trade space. And now what we've done with industry is said, no, no, you come back and you inform us. We will then go through the trades analysis and design optimization, and we will use that to finalize a requirement so that we can deliver General Rubin what he wants, and what the Army needs at an affordable price and in the schedule that we are looking to achieve. You see the same thing in the uh, future tactical UAS. So General Rugen talked about that in the three brigades uh, by try and form. So we've gone out there and actually rapidly procured those, moved directly into getting those out to soldier touch points. We're collecting the data from that, and the data from that is then going to be able to inform General Rugen's requirement, and we're working with him hand in hand to understand how we would structure that program. From a resources perspective, so you, you couldn't ask for somebody who knows more about resources in General Rugen. He is uh, comes out of the Army G8 community as well as being a, uh, a longtime tactical commander. So he brings that tactical depth along with the resourcing understanding and how that is executed within PPBE. And so it's been tremendous for us to be able to look at how we fund programs and how we capture opportunities. Opportunities that were present in the past, but we really never had the flexibility to move forward and be able to capture those opportunities. And certainly with the CFT and the alignment of requirements and resources underneath AFC and the EEPEG co-chairs, we've been able to execute that and seize those opportunities. 
Um, and then lastly, that third area that uh, everyone likes to focus on is acquisition. And I will tell you that within the PEO and as aligned to the CFT and AFC, we have fully implemented the new DOD 5000.002 adaptive acquisition framework, the 5000.80 middle tier acquisition, along with all of the new authorities uh, that we've been given to drive acquisition outcomes, to streamline processes, and to really ensure that the bureaucracy that has existed in the past is no longer in our way as we drive towards modernization outcomes. And so let me give you just a couple of examples within the acquisition side of the house. If you look at the FARA program, the future attack reconnaissance aircraft, a prototyping effort with five initial designs down selected two, we're taking both to flight. That is done under other and other transactional authority arrangement for contracting. And so you see that use of prototyping, which is what really we've been asked to go do. And we've been able to work hand in hand with General Rubin's team as we've executed that. And then how we use different contracting methods and OTAs to get to a prototype, have a fly off of those prototypes, and then make an informed down select. I've already talked about FLORA, and I've talked about the way that we're doing the requirements definition, but also the way that we are driving competition within that space, and then the use of middle tier acquisition, as well as OTA, as then we transition into the EMD program. Uh, the FTUAS program that I talked about earlier, that was actually a commercial procurement. So we went out and did a commercial procurement on air vehicles that had been created by industry with no defense dollars that were involved in there. So there would have been no previous defense investment in it. And so again, a very different way of going about looking at procuring these air vehicles and then trying them out in the field, that try side, and then informing as we move forward. Uh, for air launched effects, air launched effects, another middle tier acquisition where we've broken it down into payloads, air vehicles, and mission systems with a government architecture. And as we go through working on the experimentation that General Rugen talked about, so we're using an MTA, we have an OTA for that as well. So that's our acquisition authority and contracting methodology that we're using. And then we're leveraging into the experimentation that General Rugen is doing to continue to refine that as we go through and we rapidly prototype those systems and then leave residual capability out in the field. Modular open system architecture, General Rugen talked about, and I can certainly address it earlier, but we've established the Architecture Collaborative Working Group, which links government, industry, and academia together so that we can adequately address how we execute modular open system architecture, both from a governance perspective so that we have the appropriate governance over the way that we process those, the way that we execute most in the interfaces, but that we also have the appropriate business model that incentivizes industry to invest into these technologies, gives them opportunity, and they can certainly look and do the business case on where their revenue stream would come from, and they can clearly see where the opportunities are to compete, and they can adequately gauge what their PGO and PWIN is associated with a MOSA approach. Um, intellectual property strategy. So there's a new Army intellectual property strategy that's out that is fully integrated in what we're doing. And we are an intellectual property strategy right now that will ensure that we understand the appropriate IP we need as we move forward because that is absolutely critical to how we address the sustainment of these air vehicles and systems as we move to the future. Uh, and then lastly is really our implementation of a digital design process that runs throughout everything we do and into the product lifecycle management. That is that digital thread that folks talk about all the time. Certainly industry has gone there and we've been able to leverage what we've learned from industry and what has been done within the science and technology community and then bring that into the PES so that we are instantiating that digital ecosystem 
digital engineering model-based approaches, which will fundamentally change the way that we solicit, where it's no longer a paper solicitation, but you get a model-based design that you propose against. And that will give us a lot greater fidelity in the way that we execute these programs. So again, I could continue on and on, uh, extremely proud of the way that the CFT and the PEO have worked together as we work towards these modernization priorities and deliver outcomes. Um, certainly a lot more work to do in the future, and I look forward to your questions. Pat, thank you so much. That was wonderful. And the questions, ladies and gentlemen, are, are coming in, and we hope to get to as many of them as we can. I want to kick it off with a question from me, and we'll see where we go from there. Um, I think I'll address this to Mr. Mason, and I, you know, you you mentioned the improved turbine turbine engine program or ITEP, and I know that has been underway for some time now. I also am aware that General Electric is under contract for some aspect of that, but I'm also aware that uh, both Boeing and Sikorsky are going to deliver prototype helicopters. You talked about them flying, and they'll I'm sure come with an engine. I'm curious how. The ITEP program and the FARA and the FLARA programs at some point uh, integrate down the road uh, and, and how that all comes together. And then part two of this, I'll just lump this question in since we got it from the audience. Uh, this is from Jasper Gill from Inside Defense. Uh, he mentioned that uh, General Murray was talking this morning and he says that the ITEP has been delayed a few weeks and what caused the delay and is it still on schedule for a critical design re review in the third quarter of this fiscal year. So, Pat, I'll turn that over to you to start. Sure. Thank, thanks very much, sir. And uh, and certainly, uh, General Rubin, uh, you know, we'll, we'll want to weigh in at the end of uh, my answer to talk a little bit about the overall strategy. So, ITEP is the engine for the FARA platform. It uh, is also the engine that's going to go in the Black Hawk and the Apache aircraft. So, as we go to the future, ITEP and that program will be integrated into our UH-60s, it will be integrated into the H-64 Echo, and it will be integrated into the FAR aircraft. Now for FLORA, we've taken a different approach, and, and that approach is that we have allowed industry to look at the best engine based on the design optimization that they go through. So industry will actually be selecting the engine that will go into the initial FLORA, the future long-range assault aircraft. So two different approaches that we have. One, we've told industry specifically the ITEP, but that engine is well-sized to go into FARA, and it creates commonality with our UH-60 fleet and our 64 fleet, which really significantly reduces the logistics burden that we have out in the field where we have multiple different engines. And then we have the other engine, which is the heavy engine. And I say heavy because the FLARA is just a bigger aircraft, so you need more horsepower out of that engine. And industry, as part of their proposal, will be a select, selecting the engine there. And I'll let General Rugen talk a little bit more about the engine strategy moving forward in the longer term, but that's the approach right now. And then um, I can follow up after that and just talk specifically on ITEP schedule. So Gen General Rugen, over to you. Uh, yes, sir, thanks for the question. So, you know, we, we are looking, uh, ultimately we would really like to explore a two engine strategy uh, for our organic industrial base uh, down at CCAD. Uh, we really think the efficiencies there with a two-engine strategy across all of Army Aviation's uh, tactical fleet would really be a, a powerful way to go at uh, both readiness and uh, affordability concerns. Over. Yeah, and then, then sir, I'll ask, I'll answer the specific question, uh, reference ITEP. So we have actually started to execute the critical design review for ITEP. 
Uh, we're executing, we're in the process of building up to the full CDR. So we've done component level uh, critical design reviews right now. Um, that was originally when we looked at it, there was an acceleration that we were trying to obtain where we'd be able to do it in second quarter. Uh, given COVID and all of the factors that have gone on with COVID, we were unable to do that. So we're executing it in third quarter. Our original baseline for that was fourth quarter of this year. So we will finish the CDR prior to uh, the original plan. Uh, but that does bring up COVID impacts because as ITEP is really the most mature technology wise, and we are going to first engine the test next year, uh, that's the number one watch item we've had across the future vertical lift portfolio for COVID impacts. Um, hardware needs to be coming in the later part of this year so that we can test at the component level, assemble into the engine, and then go to first engine to test. And so that's going to be critical over the next month to two months to see where we stand on hardware deliveries with that and that whether or not we will reach first engine to test at the time that we had originally stated. Um, so from a, a baseline, though, I do want to say incredibly proud of the ITEP team because think about the COVID impacts, think about going to a critical design review and then doing it in a remote fashion. And we've never done that beforehand and the team has been able to execute it by this month, June. And uh, really just uh, my thanks to the entire team, which is the government team, the industry team, GE Aviation that has worked to try to make that CDR possible this month in June. Great, thank you both for that. I got a great question here. It's from uh, CW4 retired Lucas Whittington. He's working with Noble Tech Solutions on the A-Team contract. He'd like to know what efforts are being coordinated between the future vertical lift CFD and the Army Network CFD to support the implied network capabilities to make sure that the advanced teaming is successful in a denied environment. And I think, Pat, I'll let you start with that, but General Rugen, you may have some piece to that too as well. Yes, I will, I will tell you that General Rugen has a, has a huge piece of that. It's been very instrumental in ensuring that the CFTs are linked up between General Gallagher's CFT and then certainly my counterpart in uh, General Collins up at C32 who just took over for General Bassett. Um, I, I will tell you not a week goes by that we are not integrated into the network discussions and the network configuration management processes that are going on. Um, so there is a significant focus because we understand that the interoperability needs to be there as we move to the future, both the integrated tactical network and then the additional requirements that General Rugen has based on the, the leap ahead reach that he talked about when he started. Uh, I, I will say that we have a number of efforts that are going on and really the, the criticality for it is back to what General Rugen talked about with the open system approach. With our open system approach, it allows us to no longer be wedded to very long integration solutions as the Army needs to advance in technologies very fast. So what we see in the networking side is technology moving very fast. How do we adapt to that in the platform side of the house? And our open system approach allows us to go do that as we move, not just to the future, but we have programs in place right now that will address that for the enduring fleets so that our Apache Blackhawk and Chinook fleet, which will still be out for many decades, can remain interoperable as the Army and the CFT network pushes forward with their modernization objectives. And General Rugen, over to you. Yes, so very quickly, our, our studies, uh, high fidelity physics-based modeling, and then our live experimentation out west, uh, we did that high fidelity modeling in most of 2018 to prove out what we needed uh, and what we thought we needed. And then we went into uh, experimentation last year. Uh, last year, we were out there with assured position navigation and timing and the network, proving out uh, the network's Cape Set 23 and its efficacy in the air domain 
uh, with our surrogate platforms and some of our um, our, our platforms we're going to use. We'll do that again this year. Uh, we are really maturing um, a mesh network capability that is going to be able to generate an air ground common operating picture that uh, we're very excited about. And, and again, we think that uh, our kill chains with this air ground uh, common operating picture are going to be what they need to do to go after you know our pacing threats and our high payout threats. Great, thank you very much. This is one for you, uh, General Rugen, specifically. Uh, it's from Tim Martin, and he asks, what extra detail can you share about the EW testing with ALE and our representative threats being engaged? Yes, uh, yes and yes. So um, we are working, again, that network is, is very important to give us the backbone to communicate when we, when we uh, try to find and fix pacing and high payoff threats. We're using uh, electronic support measures. Um, we're also using some electronic protect. Um, and then we have some synthetic aperture radar that probably won't be ready this year, but, but that payload will be ready next year or early um, next year. And we'll fly it at our Western test range with the whole ecosystem. Um, but interestingly, we're flying the multifunctional electronic warfare pod air large. Uh, about one to two years early on the Gray Eagle this year out at our, our um, experimentation and test and uh, doing a number of uh, other payloads that are classified. Over. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I think this one is for you, General Rugen. It's uh, from Chief, Chief Warrant Officer Fort Crawford at the 4th uh, Combat Aviation Brigade. And he has learned from the 160th and our, our own experiences in the quick reaction tests and the importance of bringing users into the acquisition efforts at the developmental stages to streamline test, analyze, and fix methodology. Can you speak to the level of user and force input into future vertical lift? And if it's used, how is that helping shape the program? Soldier touch points are fundamental and uh, we, we are aggressive at it. Uh, we have uh, massive buy-in from uh, the Force Com Commanding General, uh, General Garrett, um, we are part of the ASARC, so we, we are well ahead of this, so we're not crashing into uh, training calendars. Uh, we've had a, uh, a number of our maintenance and instructor pilots, along with our enlisted NCO and uh, maintainers, out to see the aircraft. But we're, we're also doing a lot with, uh, you know, the new white phosphorus goggles. That was a, a big-time uh, soldier touch point where you've seen those white phosphorus uh, really expand in the aviation brigades. And uh, as we do more and more of the um, lethality, we had the master gunners from the 82nd and 25th cab out to actually shoot the spike missile uh, in Israel. And so we are not uh, in any way, shape or form doing this in a bubble. We are welcoming the soldier touch points and uh, proving it out for sure. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, here's a quick one, I think for you, Pat Mason. Uh, has the Army awarded a contract for the aviation mission common server, and that's again from Jasper Gill at Inside Defense. So I appreciate the question, and for the Aviation Mission Common Server, AMCS. So that actually goes back to what I talked about as the solution for the enduring fleet, as we open up the enduring fleet, and we're able to more rapidly integrate uh, different network waveforms, different uh, communications elements, and really be able to do that in the enduring fleet. And it has an open computing environment, and it's really the first element of our open system approach 
And that leads and bridges into what we're doing for future vertical lift and the future vertical lift ecosystem. So as, as folks like to say many times, you know, you need some reps and sets to get, get to the practice of doing it. And so AMCS is giving us that and really allowing us to really make sure that we understand how we execute this open systems approach from a business perspective and deliver the Army what it needs. We have not done the down select yet for that program. So we did the initial OTA. We are in the process of looking at those vendors and we'll be moving very quickly to a down select that will then move forward uh, as we continue to explore that technology and we go to a couple of vendors that will move forward and actually start to build the hardware and we prove out the AMCS capability. Great, thank you very much. Uh, here's a question from Brock Gaston at Vertex Aerospace and he's, he'd like to know about DVE on these aircraft. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with DVE in a ground sense, I, not so much in aviation, but uh, who'd like to take that one? I'll start, then I think Pat will finish it off. But uh, degraded visual environment is uh, is important to us. Obviously, we, we've seen a number of losses uh, in, in the last uh, 18, 19 years of conflict where uh, if the crew could have seen through uh, the degraded visual environment that was created by our uh, downwash that, uh, you know, we could have saved lives and certainly saved a ton of equipment. Um, I think as we look at this, you know, we're seeing a, a direct requirement in the DVEPS capability on both uh, soft aircraft and uh, some medevac aircraft out of Fort Hood. Um, and with, that, with almost everything uh, dealing with the CFT, you can expect a, a prototyping effort with a soldier touch point early, and that's where we're at currently. Um, I think as we explore this, uh, we're, we're seeing some pretty incredible technology when it comes to uh, augmented reality and an ability for uh, pilots to achieve situational awareness that are gonna help us. Uh, my uh, philosophy on this is that I don't think we're gonna be able to eat the elephant in one bite. So when we talk about full pilotage, uh, that's not a, a standard I wanna you know, look at in increment one or two. I think we have to attack situational awareness in the cockpit help with that cognitive, cognitive offloading in the cockpit during a very acute situation and help the uh, aircraft land uh, safely and you know proceed safely. We wanna own the environment and I think we can do it with situational awareness. Over to you, Pat. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, sir. So uh, good to hear from you, Brock. And, uh, and certainly I'm pretty familiar with the DVETS program and where SOCOM is going, although a little bit removed from it these days because I was actually the TAPO PM when we put out the initial solicitation for DVEX. Um, and so that solution, which has become a direct requirement, is going into the HH-60s and also the Special Operations Aviation Community. Um, we are leveraging that, as General Rugen said, to look at the technology elements, the enablers that are necessary on the aircraft to provide for what General Rugen envisions is the final set of requirements that we would have. Uh, I think the challenges as we move forward that, uh, and as he said, you know, can't just take the elephant all in one bite is weight swap and affordability. And so you go and you look at how do we want to provide pilotage? Well, the first step is situational awareness. How do we get situational awareness at an affordable uh, point for the fleet? And how do we ensure that it has the right swap associated with it, space, waste, and weight and power? Uh, because that's critical to the performance attributes of the aircraft. And so when we look across the totality of the fleet, those are the elements that we're focused on. 
and ensuring that each platform has the proper computing environment because just from a technology perspective, this is a computationally intensive um, element that goes on the aircraft because you're trying to figure out where free space is. And that's basically a lot of math that's got to go on, which means a lot of computing power that then needs to get up to the crew. And so those are the design optimization trades that we're looking through right now as we work to a final set of requirements and then look to see what General Rugen wants for the future vertical lift ecosystem and then what can go into the enduring fleet as well. Excellent. Uh, we've gotten two questions on the uh, intellectual property uh, strategy that you mentioned, uh, Mr. Mason. So I'm going to try and bundle those into one burrito here. Uh, one person asked, this is Yasin Tajude. I probably got that name wrong. Uh, can you please discuss the intellectual property strategy in more depth? When did it come out? And what's the reasoning? What, you know, what was driving the strategy? And then Lee Hudson at Aviation Week asks, is the aviation property strategy you mentioned specific to Army Aviation? And could you talk about when it came out and is it publicly released? Yeah, so the, the intellectual property strategy that came out and, and really Dr. Jetty uh, spearheaded this along with General Murray and AFC because they recognized the need to address and, and General Perna as well. So General Murray, General Perna and Dr. Jetty, uh, the need to fully address intellectual property early in the life cycle of an aircraft through the developmental phases and not a broad breast approach where we say we need intellectual property, but a very surgical approach to where we looked at what are the critical elements, the critical intellectual property that the government needs to have to ensure the long-term sustainment of the aircraft. And along with that, when you look at the intellectual properties, how do we balance that with how industry views their business case for IP? Because in many cases, the IP that a company has is what ensures long-term revenue due to the aftermarket support that's provided. And so how do you balance those within the market? How does industry provide sufficient IP while we still understand that based on industries, both their investment and their need for long-term operating margins and cash flow, that we create a balanced strategy? And so understanding that, and Dr. Jetty coming out of, uh, out of the business world, uh, crafted the IP strategy. It is an Army IP strategy. It is releasable to everyone. Uh, FLORA is actually one of the pilot programs for the IP strategy, but it's really been extended into FARA as well. And what we've done is decompose what we consider to be the crown jewels of the long-term aircraft sustainment, categorize those, and then we are using those as we go through this program to make sure that we've clearly identified what those intellectual property drivers are, how we would use that data as it comes in. So it's a very surgical approach and then how we integrate that into our contracting structure as we move forward. And so there's been a lot of dialogue with industry as well on how we structure this, because it's critical that we understand the industry viewpoint, um, but really it, it is an army-wide strategy that is going on that was really driven at the highest levels in army senior leaders. And uh, it, it is a very surgical approach to how we ensure that we have the right intellectual property. And quite honestly, when you look at our enduring fleet, uh, now, we, we had misses on the intellectual property, which have caused us significant issues as we've come to the future, and we've tried to modernize those platforms or tried to sustain them. And in some cases, I can give examples of where uh, the lack of intellectual property uh, has really impacted our ability to affordably sustain the aircraft. So, and, and General Rugen, if there's anything you wanted to, to add to that. No, that was great. Good. Um, here's here's one, and if it doesn't make you question, if it doesn't make you nervous, uh, Pat, you're not paying attention. Uh, 
And that is uh, Farah and Flora, depending on who gets picked, what the source selection looks like. And this is a question from Dan Parsons, could represent a significant consolidation of OEMs, uh, providing platforms for the Army. Is that a concern? And, you know, just to put this, let's say one, you know, there's one, let's say both, one company gets both of those big awards. Let's just say that, for example, is that a concern? Uh, and how does the Army, as the biggest rotorcraft customer in the United States, plan to preserve a, a viable rotorcraft industrial base? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of parts to that, and, and I'm going to go back and just uh, go back in history a little bit, because if you think about the 60s and you think about the Army's rotorcraft base, it was all one company, and everyone else had very, very little equity, very, very little market share associated with it. You look at the Cobra, you look at the Huey, and then you look at the 58 Charlie, and you see one company, and then we had other vendors come into that space, and it shifted the market yet we were able to sustain a viable rotorcraft industry as we went forward. So I, I do look back to history to see how that was accomplished and what some of those big decisions were to make sure that we are properly informed by history and then make sure that we don't repeat history if there are things, and clearly are things that, that we realize we, we shouldn't do as we move to the future. Uh, but I will tell you that the larger concern is beyond the OEMs and it's really into the vertical lift. I'm gonna expand it beyond rotorcraft into the vertical lift defense industrial base. As you go down and as you look at, there was a, in fact, there was the defense industrial base study that was done a couple of years ago. There is a specific reference in there to the rotorcraft industry, and it talks about specific alloys that we need and specific castings and forgings and the fragility of certain suppliers. And so that is the larger concern as we move to the future and we shift from Apache Blackhawk Chinook and we shift to the Flora ecosystem is how do we ensure that those fragile suppliers remain viable within this space? How do we ensure that they have the capital to retool if they need to retool? Because we do collapse down to a couple of sectors and it's vital that they continue as they go through. And how do we make sure that they are incentivized to enter into um, the Flora ecosystem, the, the FEL ecosystem, Flora, Flora? Um, and I would also tell you there's a component of the defense industrial base that if we don't move to these new aircraft, what happens to these vendors? Because we're no longer producing vertical lift platforms anymore. We are simply sustaining. We have nothing new that's going out there. And I think it will force the industrial base, but just based strictly on affordability, cash flow, overhead, to consolidate even more, which drives more fragility into our defense industrial base. And so to me, it's critical that we execute these programs. And as we do these programs, we are drilling down into the supply chain to ensure we understand where are the critical choke points, the most fragile aspects of it, and how we address those in our acquisition strategy. And I know General Rugen has, has uh, worked on this a lot as well, and I'm sure he has a few comments. Sir, if I could just, uh, for 20 seconds, I think the, the one comment I, I would say is, you know, if you look at the inflection point of the 70s, and really the inflection point of the early 2000s and maybe the, the Comanche uh, decision. Um, it wasn't that we couldn't do two new aircraft, it, we, we couldn't do one more. And so when you look uh, at the uh, 90s and the early 2000s, we had a lot of alpha model aircraft. You know, the current fleet wasn't in good shape, um, but going into the mid-decade and the 2020s, our current fleet's gonna be in great shape. Um, and, and we have the headspace to do two because we're not doing seven things like we were uh, during the surge um, in, in 07 to maybe uh, you know, 10, 11, 12. 
you know, there you had the F model Chinook, the Echo model Apache, the Mike model Blackhawk, the Gray Eagle, the Shadow, Jagum, ITEP. You had all these things in the aviation portfolio. And what happened is we couldn't do one more. Not that we couldn't do two. Um, in the mid-decade uh, that we see coming up is we see our current fleet and our current capabilities in really great shape because of the investments of the last 20 years. And so we are able to do two. And, and to Pat's point, you know, we can't afford not to. Not only for the uh, the capabilities it's going to bring to the force, but also the industrial base. Over. Thanks, Wally. Great, great one. I got uh, a couple of questions. They're all kind of the same thing. And maybe, Pat, you're best to start on this. And, and you, you touched on in your opening remarks, but it's COVID. The impact of COVID. I got the sense that things were not ter terribly impacted. And then another corollary to that question is, uh, Tim Martin asks, will the uh, FARA or the FLARA contractors receive any additional funding to ensure that the, the, the COVID uh, does not knock these programs off schedule? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll address that really in, in two elements. One is uh, the future vertical lift programs that are going on. And for those programs, given where they are within the engineering design phases of it right now, uh, we have not seen any significant impact. Uh, the teams have really been phenomenal at being able to work through all of the telework aspects and remote aspects so that they can continue to execute the engineering design work as well as the trades analysis and the design optimization we talked about. Um, the exception to that is ITEP, which is a really high watch item in ITEP because we are actually shipping hardware. Uh, we have an extensive supply chain associated with those vendors, and so that's a little bit different because we did have interruptions in the production side of the house of some of those components. Because those are things you, you can't telework, right? Those are those are folks that have to go into work because they're they're building components that are coming together. And so that has been the one that has been more challenged as we've gone through because it's just at a higher level of design than the other elements. Um, now, when you look at what we've done for industry across the board, we have flowed progress payments out to industry and ensure that we've cash flowed sufficiently so that they can continue to have operating cash as they move. I think for those defense companies that are pure defense, that are defense play only, uh, that hasn't been a big issue. Our biggest concern has been down in the supply chain again to those that have significant exposure to the aviation commercial market. Uh, certainly the downturn in the commercial market um, has caused us concern on some suppliers. And I will say that all of the primes and the OEMs out there have done a really good job of ensuring that the cash flows down to those critical suppliers and the progress payments and the additional cash that we've provided to ensure that, that they are viable. But what we've also done is tried to take up as much excess capacity as we could. Uh, you went back to the defense industrial bases. We actually have some programs that are out right now that were constrained because we com competed with the commercial market. And given that the commercial market has fallen away right now, we've been able to actually take advantage of that and fill up some of that excess capacity that is now out there. And I think that's going to be critical as we move to the future because you know, certainly there's a lot of discussion on how long it's going to take for the aviation industry in total to recover. Um, and then lastly, just on the COVID, where we have seen the impacts is on those programs that are in production right now. So it's been in the press, and I've talked about it beforehand, is that the Apache production line, we are going to slow that uh, time. And, and that's necessary just due to the supply chain so that we can get the supply chain shored up. And certainly right now, we don't see fielding impacts to the Army, but we are continuing to look at that in very close coordination with Boeing on what those are. And certainly we've seen the same thing on the UH-60 mic deliveries as well. But again, no impact to Army fieldings based on when the new units are going to be stood up for the 60 mic. 
but we have seen slips in the delivery of aircraft simply based on loss of efficiency and supply chain challenges. Great. Uh, this next question comes from Daryl Reed, and I'd be lying if I said I understand it completely, but I'm, I'm sure you guys do. How will MEP, which I'm guessing is, I don't even want to guess at it, how will MEP be planned for the platforms for airframe integration if that MEP is not planned to be on the prototypes when they launch? For the, uh, I think that's a combined answer, and I, I know Daryl and Mission Equipment Package. So Daryl wants to know how, um, and really there's a broader question there, which is how does industry compete for Mission Equipment Packages uh, beyond what's on the prototype right now? And so if, if you understand the context of FARA and you understand the way that we're moving forward with the open systems approach, there are certain nodes, if you will, that are on that backbone that give us the flexibility to ramp um, MEP, mission equipment package items, right? Whether it's a survivability suite or it's a comm suite or it's, a, it's something to do with NAV or it's a sensor suite on and off the platform by using the appropriate technical protocols that, are, that we have already developed, right? Whether that is the system open, open architecture process, whether it's face, host, and we can go through all of those and Daryl knows what all those acronyms mean um, because uh, you know he and, and a lot of folks, that's, that's the world that they live in. We do have the industry day that's coming up in July. It is a combined industry day between FLORA and FARA where we will discuss specifically the mission equipment packages. Uh, and this is an opportunity to hear back from industry because what we do want is on those nodes where we can have competition. We want competition. We believe competition is good. It drives good behavior, not just on industry side, but it drives good behavior on our side in the way that we look at executing these programs. Uh, and quite honestly, I look, I, I'm looking very forward to those discussions in July at the industry day. Great, thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, Quig, uh, you know, jump in the pool with us, uh, communicate with us. I think those uh, systems are out there. And uh, again, you know, we're serious about MOSA. Uh, we want to, you know, upgrade at the pace of technology and we want to uh, address affordability concerns. And that's what MOSA does. Over. Thank you. Uh, next question for you, General Rugan. To what degree is Army Vertical Lift partnering with the other services in multi-domain operations? from Christian Milford. No. I think uh, um, more than you would think. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, extensive uh, partnership with, uh, with SOCOM and the Marine Corps. Um, that uh, Marine Corps interest in, in Cape Set 3 is, is no secret. And we've been partnering with them for probably the last eight to 10 years on that capability uh, requirement and, and development. And we continue to partner with them. Um, the, the interest in the FARA ecosystem is, uh, is very uh, heightened uh, as we drive into uh, project convergence at the end of the year. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of services come and look at what we built uh, in our architecture, automation, autonomy, and interfaces, which is our, our portion of it, A3I. And again, seeing intense uh, SOCOM interest, intense Marine Corps interest, so more than you would think, and it's a good thing. Thank you very much. This question from Pat Donahue kind of relates to that, I think, General Rugan. How do you see artificial intelligence being integrated into the enduring and the future fleets? So we have uh, two uh, main things we're doing with AI right now, um, and I'm going to let Pat talk about the, uh, the maintenance portion of that. I just received a great brief from one of our great PMs, uh, Greg Fortier, on what they're doing with uh, AI and, and predictive maintenance. 
but what we're doing uh, on the uh, lethality and survivability side is auto target uh, detection and recognition. If, if we can have a soldier that has um, an 80% uh, better target recognition with, with an algorithm, uh, still have an aviator in the loop, obviously, or a ground commander in the loop when the shot is taken. But if, if we can uh, have a higher confidence level, that's what we're working on. We ran those algorithms and those uh, uh, auto target detection and recognition algorithms last year at China Lake. We'll run them again this year out at Yuma. Uh, and we continue to, to push the envelope on those to get better um, uh, cognitive offloading in the cockpit. If we can see it first and, and shoot on it first uh, and to greater accuracy, that's all, all good. Over to you, Pat. Yeah, that, thanks. And, and certainly, you know, from my perspective, the place where we can leverage AI, machine learning, deep learning first is within the sustainment enterprise. Uh, much more deterministic in the way that you look at that data. And so we have a number of efforts that are going on right now that will impact not just the enduring fleet, but bridge to future vertical lift as well. And we're fully integrated with the Jake, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, as well as the Army AI Task Force that's at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and just to give you an example of that, we've teamed with the uh, the ERDEC, who is, does high-performance computing, and we've taken all of the aviation data, working in concert with General Royer, the AMCOM commanding general. Um, we've looked at how we process all of that, score more of the data using machine learning to get more scored aviation maintenance data out of that. And then we have have a number of companies, one of which is the effort that General Rugen alluded to, that have developed built algorithms and we are actually taking data that we can train those algorithms with and then we have a set of data that we can score those algorithm, algorithms with and we're putting those out in a uh, cloud space, right? So I've hit the three buzz terms, right? Which is artificial intelligence and cloud computing, right? I, I joke around, but those are the big buzz terms where we're actually doing those right now in the way that we're approaching this and what that allows is also our ability to push that sustainment data forward uh, to the tactical edge and to ensure that the maintainers who need that can get that. So we're looking at it in depth at the tactical edge and then all the way back to the wholesale level and then how we integrate that into the sustainment aspect first because we feel that that is the, the, both the easiest and it is high payoff right off the bat. Excellent. And uh, we're nested with the Jake and AI Task Force and five other CFTs too, quickly, sorry. No, good. Uh, this next, I'm going to bundle two questions about modular open system architecture into one. Uh, the first one uh, comes from Julius Regol. He asks, how do you see the efforts on architecture merging for a MOSA approach? And do you see, do you see a joint approach to mission systems for both FARA and FLARA? And then Jarrett Jensen asks, this is a more, very much more specific question. We have heard that the UH-60 Victor program is going to provide a proof of concept for MOSA. Can you elaborate on this and how this will be integrated into FVL? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start out with that. And, and really, when you look at the architecture, I'll go back to General Rugen mentioned, and I said it earlier, the architecture collaborative working group. And that is FARA and FLARA, and it is all of the players, all of the PM offices with the entire CFT and then other CFTs that are tied into that as well, so that we have a collaborative approach to the way that we are implementing the architecture and really the future vertical lift architecture framework, which we call the FAF, right? And so the FAF is that process map by which we will have alignment between these programs. 
And that is shifting a, a huge paradigm where we previously built aircraft within, I don't want to say stovepipes, but they were built within their own platform specific ways. And now we're looking at it in a holistic manner across all of the platforms to really deliver that future vertical lift ecosystem that General Rugen talked about. Uh, specifically to 60 Victor, so 60 Victor does is the first that uses an open system approach. I will tell you, it does it does more than that in my view because it is also proofing out the use of multi-core processing, auto code generation, that digital thread again, auto checking all the things that are proof of concept and will burn down the risk as we get into FAR and FLARA because we will have demonstrated it on the 60 Victor program and the way that we have structured that, that digital cockpit. And for those who don't know, the, the Victor is essentially a Lima model that we have put a digital cockpit in, and that digital cockpit and the design of it was fundamentally different than what we've done in the past and the way that we have used an open system approach, but more importantly, how we've used multi-core processing and auto code generation, which you know, for the, the tech folks out there will understand why that is so critical and why that is a bridge to the future and, uh, and General Rugen's ecosystem. Great. Well, we, we're not going to be able to get to all of our questions. Or maybe I'll try and see if we can squeeze one or two in. We'll see how these go. Uh, this one uh, for you, Mr. Mason, I think, on ITEP, and this is from Yasmin Tadjeta. Did GE, GE's aviation decision to cut its workforce affect the ITEP program, or did that only affect its commercial side? Yeah, so I, I think there was a, um, you know, there's been a couple of publicly released comments out of GE Aviation, and I certainly won't comment on what what's going on in GE Aviation. I, I will just tell you that from the perspective of um, impacts due to workforce, we haven't seen that on GE Aviation. You know, what we have seen is just the challenges associated with the distributed environment, trying to execute through, but more importantly, I'll go back to because we have been able to execute the design work and get that done this quarter for critical design review, which again is is really phenomenally impressive, but it gets back to supply chain and production elements that are necessary for components. And you can't do that in a distributed manner. You gotta be on site and there are certain efficiencies that you lose as they have fought and fought hard through COVID to retain where they are. Thank you. Uh, last question. I think I'll throw it to you, General Rugen. Uh, you're not in Washington, D.C., but I'm sure you feel the, the gravity of it some days. And that is, you know, there's a lot of talk about defense budgets going down, uh, priorities changing, that type of thing. Uh, uh, Dakota Wood from the Heritage Foundation is interested in, you know, do you have any sense of where, when the Army may need to start making tough choices, where future vertical lift falls on that list of priorities? Well, we're number three, and I think uh, I think you know we uh, we enjoy that position, but we certainly don't take it for granted. Um, when we look at the um, really you know the COVID impacts across the entire um, aviation industrial base, I think that informs uh, you know our position in the world because we are uh, a place where you know as a nation we can we can keep uh, some of the um, the capability going. Um, I don't know that that you know is a is a massive policy uh, statement by anyone, but that's just my uh, personal thinking. Um, we we moved out and we got you know our our folks on contract and 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 moving with momentum uh, in March prior to the the big COVID impacts, and I think um, again um, couldn't be better pleased with 
the PEO and all the work they've uh, been doing, but also industry. Um, when we look at, I, I allude back to, or I go back to my past comments, when we, we look at the current fleet, the current fleet is in good shape to take a leap ahead, but where the current fleet is not in good shape is the incremental approach we've taken over uh, 40 to 50 years, and by 2030, you know, 60 years um, to keep these things going. And so obsolescence is gonna be um, a tremendous problem. And so if we're gonna spend as much money and just get similar uh, capability that we had maybe in, in 1981, I think, uh, again, it's, it's can't afford not to because we're gonna want that leap ahead capability and we're gonna want a viable uh, vertical lift industrial base. Um, if cuts come, uh, I think, again, uh, with some of the studies that have been out by the Congressional Budget Office and CSIS, uh, we're seeing that our budgets are lean. Uh, even doing two aircraft, we're at the lower end of uh, the last uh, 20 to 30 years of aviation procurement. And so, again, um, we certainly are not uh, um, overconfident. We're humble, but, uh, you know, Again, we built a lean program, a cost-conscious program, because we needed to. Thank you for that. And with that, we've uh, run to the end of our time. I want to thank our great panelists, General Rugen, Mr. Mason. Give, please give them a virtual a round of applause. This program, as I said earlier, will be emailed to you, and it'll be available on heritage.org. Thank you very much for attending today, and have a great rest of your day.